0: There's, a, there's something in the game of football that's, uh, that's called from time to time. If you, if you know something about quarterbacks, they have this responsibility that uh, when they get up and they see a defense that is uh, not, not fit for the play that they called, you know what they do? They call an audible. Yeah, I'm surprised some of y'all knew it. They call an audible. Well, guess what? Today, we're calling an audible. Your bulletin tells you that we are in Zephaniah, and we were last week, and we, Lord willing, will be this coming Sunday, but today, for a number of reasons, uh, I felt it fitting that we Visit the text that I used yesterday at Luther's funeral. And so for some of you that heard yesterday's sermon, it will be instructive in some sense. Like, okay, I see how a text can be preached differently in different settings, but mean the same thing. Uh, Maybe that will be helpful for you. Some of you, you weren't in the service yesterday, so this is just going to be like a normal sermon to you. So I want you to go to first Peter. I'll give you, I'll give you some of the reasons, I suppose. Uh, I saw the church mobilize between Wednesday and Saturday in ways that, I, I mean, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Watching you folks serve, watching those relationships that you're investing in the the words of encouragement that you are giving to Wanda and others the way that y'all were working together I don't know if I've ever seen a kitchen full of volunteers work as efficiently as they did yesterday so I just want to say like I'm super proud of you all for the way that you have handled yourself from Wednesday when we first heard the news until even now as we continue to minister to Wanda so that was a tremendous encouragement for me. Furthermore, because of traveling and some of the events of this week, I didn't feel like we would be able to, to, to do justice to Zephaniah um, because my time was extremely short. And so we called this audible. Hopefully the Lord will be honored in our time spent in First Peter today. We pray that is the case. What we have in uh, First Peter... Go to chapter 4. We're going to cover verses 7 through 11. And uh, over time, this has become one of my favorite passages of Scripture. What we have in these verses is a series of commands and encouragements that were given to a people who were encountering the hostility and confusion and the chaos of the world. They're wondering what's ahead. They're wondering how the Lord's going to sustain them. You know, Peter's writing to the dispersed people, the people of the dispersion. So a lot of things are up in the air for them, and I know we can recognize a bit of that in our culture now. We as Christians increasingly feel out of place. And if you don't feel that, then I'm wondering, maybe you're leaning the way of the world. We need to recognize that we ought to have this This increasing feeling, it's normal to have this increasing feeling that we don't really fit where we are. That's what they're dealing with, and they have very little in terms of life structure in these days that brings them back to what they know. So Peter writes to them and helps them to recall those truths of the gospel, the, the resurrected Lord Jesus, our living hope. And he preaches to them in these letters about that living hope. Now, in chapter 4, he's dealing with some of the relationships between believers and outsiders in the world, okay? But then he turns in these verses, verses 7 through 11, and he deals more with what's going on inside among the saints. That's where we are. Let's read together 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. It says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's blessings. Father, we need your help again. Send your spirit to Illumine our hearts and minds. Show us truth. Show us Christ. Transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a key phrase in verse 10. It says, God's varied grace. And I would argue that this passage, these little verses right here, are wrapped around that concept. That this is about God's grace becoming uh, evident and being bestowed on, granted to us through our ministry to one another. This, this phrase, varied grace, I don't know if your version has this word in here, but some versions, I believe, use the word multicolored. So, the varied grace is a multicolored grace. It comes in, uh, you know, uh, different expressions. One expression is a little different than another expression. And so, God's grace is is beautiful, okay? It's, it's multicolored. It's multifaceted. And we get to see that, that beauty through the ministry of one another. So keep this in mind. This phrase here teaches us that God extends grace to the ministry through the ministry of others, excuse me. He uses us to extend grace to others, So there is a giving and receiving that's going on in the ministry of the saints, the ministry of of the redeemed, both of which contribute to our upbuilding in the faith. So when you give, right, it's it's better to give than to receive. Why is it better to give than to receive? Because when you give, you know how it upbuilds you. When you give, it's not like, Oh, no, I'm a, a little less than I was before. No, as a believer, when you give, you actually grow. And when you receive, when you receive that ministry of the saints, when you receive that, that act of service, that act of love, that show of hospitality, whatever it may be, when you receive, certainly, you know you are built in your faith. So we see this. Clearly manifest in the local church. So, the theme, as we said it yesterday, the same theme God's grace abounds to us through the service of his faithful servants. God's grace abounds to us through the service of his faithful servants. Now, Peter uses the word serve in two different ways here. I hope you kind of picked up on that. There's a narrow sense and a broad sense. So, broadly, As the theme of this passage is, broadly, it's that everyone would use their gift and their uniqueness to serve. You get that? So it's not just service or acts of service that serve one another. It's all those things. So right now, for instance, I am using what I believe to be the gift of teaching to serve you. Yet, I don't really have the gift of service. And some of you are like, yeah, I noticed. (laughs) And that's the truth. Look, that's that's a tough area for me, service. I know how to operate in my giftedness. And so there is a broad sense where I'm serving you. But in a narrow sense, there are certain people who have the gift of service. You're just good at it. I could go on naming names, but I don't want to leave anybody out. So, we see both of those ways he uses the the word serve in this text. So, I want to give you six encouragements. If you were counting yesterday, there were six. We're going to use those same encouragements today and apply it here. Six encouragements. I know you're probably thinking, oh man, six points is going to be forever long. Um, Well, I'll have you know that I preached that funeral yesterday in about 22 and a half minutes. But we're already like halfway to that, so it ain't going to be 22 and a half minutes. Six encouragements today. I want to give you, first off, serve, and we're talking about that broad sense. For some of y'all, it's broad and narrow. Serve with sober urgency. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Prayers. And this addresses the matter of the end of all things. We know the end is coming. So the question is, how does that affect our lifestyle now? When reformer Martin Luther was asked what he would do if he knew that today was the end, he replied, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. In my opinion, well, that's not very special, right? Plant a tree Pay my taxes. His point was that he lived every day in light of the end. So he would simply do the tasks for today. This is what I had on the schedule. So that's what I'm going to do today. We must live with that sort of mindset. Hey, there's a lot of stuff to be done, but we don't need to get worked up over it. We know the end is coming. Just do what you've been called to do. So our urgency is not a frantic urgency or a chaotic urgency. The characteristics, as he says right here, we ought to have. They are self-controlled and sober-minded. These are familiar. These are familiar to us. We see these throughout the scriptures, but they're also very similar to one another. Commentators say that they should be taken together as one idea. They call us to clear thinking and level-headedness. And we as believers must not be irrational. We must not act irrationally, but carrying on in the ways that God has called us to. So we see some people, when, when you start talking about the end, and I love how when this is written, like, <laughs> we're almost 2,000 years removed from when this was written He can say with confidence, the end of all things is at hand, and we can say with confidence, the end of all things is at hand. But what happens is some people take that and they get so focused on the end that they forget about today's tasks. They forget about all the other things that the scripture calls us to. And so if we get too focused on the end times, then we're going to end up like Y2K folks. Y'all remember Y2K folks? They bought up everything. Some of y'all are like, I was one of those folks. <laughs> Man, I remember, I remember I had friends, their parents like bought up a bunch of gun safes, and they had everything ready to go. And you know what happened on that new year? Absolutely nothing. So they like they lost track of like, hey, we need to carry on in normal life, and they got so focused on what was about to happen. We can't be those people that when we talk about or think about the end times, our response is, oh, let me hunker down in my, my bunker, right? Let me get in my storm shelter. And I know I'm speaking sort of metaphorically here. It's like some folks just want to avoid everything in the world and then they're just waiting. They're just waiting on that day. You remember that's what was happening in Thessalonica. Thessalonica, there were some people who thought the end had already come. But there were some that quit working because the end was near. No, that's not, that's not a rational response to the whole counsel of God's word. There are things that must be done. We must carry on in self-control and we must be sober-minded. It says here, for the sake of our prayers... So so, sober urgency, sober urgency, he says, is for the sake of our prayers. And that may seem odd, yet when we look at the mess of our world and the widespread brokenness that we can't escape, the first thing it should do to us is cause us to pray. God intends to bring his people who are in distress to him In that communion of prayer. He invites us in. Won't he work through our prayers? Won't our prayers, as the word says, accomplish much? So he invites us in. So that when he grants our requests and brings about good before our eyes... We can know it comes from his hand. Serve with sober urgency. Secondly, from verse 8, serve with earnest love. Serve with earnest love. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The imperative comes with the assumption that love is already going on. So it's like, keep on. Doing this, so we don't we don't just love one another only in light of the end of all things. Oh, the end is near, so we need to start loving one another. That's not the idea. We love one another because it is the way of the Christian life, which we're already in. Before the world, it's that love. And remember, he's he's keeping this like, hey, you're a you're a new community, a new creation. Uh, uh, an outpost of the kingdom before the world so they can see what the kingdom is like. He's reminding them of these things. We operate internally in a way that confirms to the outsiders who we are, what we are, who we belong to. So Jesus said it, they'll know you by your love for one another. So our love ought to be, as he says, earnest. Earnest. That is intense. That is like outstretched. And that's what I've seen this week. I just want to commend y'all. Like you have outstretched your arms. You've outstretched yourself to, to show that love to Wanda. Peter also tells us what this kind of love does. He says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Since love covers a multitude of sins, some wrongly interpret this to mean that when we love, somehow it atones for our wrongs. Tom Schreiner says this flies in the face of the rest of the New Testament, so that interpretation must be rejected. The correct understanding is that when you love someone, it blossoms in forgiveness and looking past offenses what does the love chapter say first corinthians 13 love keeps no record of wrongs but even here we haven't gotten to the to the deeper parts of that love that covers a multitude of sins Why is it that we as Christians, why is it that we as Christians can't be? We simply are not the people that get mad and walk away from one another. We're simply not those people. Why are we not those people? Because our love is a gospel love. While we were sinners, Romans 5, 8 says... Christ died for us. Christ died for us. So you know why we can forgive one another and look past transgressions? Because God has wrought our forgiveness in the cross of Christ. Jesus poured out his blood so that our record of wrongs would be canceled and so that that record of wrongs would be cast as far as the east is from the west. And this is foreign to the world. This is foreign to the world. It's why when we love like God calls us to love, the world knows who we belong to. Serve with earnest love. I needed somebody to get on the organ right there. I might have kept going. Third, serve with willing hospitality, verse 9. Serve with willing hospitality. I was struck when I was preparing for the funeral uh, the past couple of days. I was struck by the comments of a nephew who said going to Luther and Wanda's house was always comforting because it was a safe space. Believers' homes and the local church ought to be safe spaces. Places filled with that warm hospitality. Pastor Kyle and I have talked about a version of hospitality that that I think we see fairly common that is really just a facade. It seems like a lot of southern hospitality has lost its original, what I believe, its original biblical motivation so that people only pretend to be hospitable. It's like greeting someone with a question. Look, I saw people doing it yesterday. I try not to do this. Hey, how are you? It's greeting them with that question and not caring a lick about what they say. That's the kind of facade that we're talking about. So we don't need to pretend to be hospitable. Or as he says right here, be hospitable. He says, do it without grumbling. So, hey, I've done this. I've done this. I'm the worst when it comes to hospitality, okay? When I'm in my home, it's like a refuge, okay? I don't want people messing up my refuge, you know, I want things getting off balance, you know. Now y'all are like, I'm never going to his house. <laughs> That's fine. I'll come to your house. Um, I'm terrible at hospitality. And so when, when we do this, this kind of grumbling, and you don't notice it maybe, but it's that kind of grumbling while pretending to be hospitable that when you come to the door, just for example... When you come to the door, you're like, oh, I've got to deal with these people again. And then it's, oh, so good to see you. (laughs) You've done it. I know you've done it. (laughs) Uh, That was Raul's confession, too. We just had a moment of confession together, brother. Yeah. That big old fake smile. That's not our kind of hospitality, saints. You know, historically, the church has been the safe haven for the marginalized in societies. Rodney Stark notes that the church made its reputation by esteeming women and slaves, welcoming victims of epidemics, caring for widows and orphans, as well as likely targets for abortion and abuse. Now, we don't quite live in the same circumstances but you can find those circumstances it's not out on every street corner but I'm telling you it's out there if you start looking we may not have the exact same circumstances but the avenues for uniquely Christian hospitality are there more often than not folks let's be honest it's your schedule if I want to be hospitable you know I got to put it in my schedule Some of y'all are good at it, I'm telling you. I want to encourage you in that. You're good at it. It flows out of you, this hospitality. Yet, like me, it's just like a budget that we talked about a few weeks ago, just like a budget. It's almost like I got to budget my time to do the things that I know I'm not good at. Hospitality is one of those things. You must be decisive if you are going to develop in hospitality in our society. Otherwise, Your schedule is always full. And there's always an excuse. So why don't you start cultivating that in very simple ways. A lot of folks in here, they'd gladly have you over to their house. Invite yourself. I'm telling you, invite yourself to their house. How about you invite them to your house? I promise I won't grunt right before I open the door. Fourthly, serve with God's gifts. Verse 10 tells us this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I said this yesterday and I'll say it again today. Some have been professing Christians for years, maybe decades, and still don't know how God's gifted them to serve others. But he says right here, each has received a gift. So don't think that somehow you're off the hook because you got nothing special to offer. I'm telling you, on the word of God, the Holy Spirit did not skip over you when He apportioned gifts. Christian, you got a gift. You got a gift, and He mentions a couple here as far as uh, teaching and service. There's that the speaking, which could encompass a bunch of gifts. And then service, which probably encompasses a bunch of gifts, as we mentioned earlier. So the spirit didn't miss you. But I want you to remember that God's grace is varied and multicolored grace. So the message for you today is that God made you unique. And through Christ, you can discover how God intends to use that uniqueness to serve others. You got the background you got. Because God put that in you. He made that part of who you are. You got the skills you got. You got the personality you got because God put that in you when He created you. He wrote your story because you have a unique thing to bring to the table in the kingdom. And I say these things and somebody's still like, you just don't believe that. I don't know what to tell you other than, hey, Start functioning in the body of Christ, and you'll discover, you'll discover quickly how what you bring to the table is a service to others. It's varied and multicolored. And it really goes beyond the gifts, as I just mentioned, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which we've preached through those verses a number of times. Paul talks extensively about gifts, but he also expands it to include all the interactions of the local church. He uses the phrase in those chapters, manifestations of the spirit, which refer to gifts as well as activities and the way of service, the way we serve one another. Different gifts, there's different activities, there's different ways that we serve One another. So when you obey a one another command, you are operating within the framework of God's intention. When you utilize a gift, you are operating within the framework of God's intention. Serve with God's gift. This is a matter, as he says right here, it's a matter of stewardship. Peter says, as good stewards of God's varied grace. But as I just confessed, and I know that you would confess, there are some of these things that you simply do not do well. It may just be a reflection of how you're built. But when it comes to serving others, when it comes to serving others, man, focus on those skills, those gifts, those activities, that ministry that God has put before you, has put in your in your heart as a burden, do that well, but don't neglect the things that you don't do well. Try to cultivate those things. That means, again, if I'm going to show hospitality, it's going to take a lot of intentionality for me. Maybe that's you as well. Serve with God's gifts. And the last two very quickly... Serve with God's strength. First part of verse 11. It says, Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Serve with God's strength. This is key. If you view ministry as a burden, then you'll neglect divine strength for the task. Just as we covered from Colossians 1 we can't do these things in our own strength will spin out, will burn out, rendering us ineffective. And this is one of those mysterious workings of faith as God has designed it. And I can't tell you like what it looks like. Here's step one, two, three on using God's strength when you're serving. I can watch two people serving. I can watch one person. Serve another person, serve, and maybe immediately I wouldn't be able to tell like, are they serving in God's strength or their own strength? I guess Tom will tell. So I don't have a step one, two, three. Well, preacher, I need to I need to answer here because when I leave this service, I gotta serve in God's strength. Well, yeah, but maybe the best way that you can learn to serve with the strength that God supplies is to find that person you know, like time has proven that they serve with the strength that God supplies. You find that person, you find someone who does that well and you learn from them, watch them serve and then serve with them so that you can learn those ways, which really are the ways of Christ. You know, there are saints among us, again, I won't mention names because I don't want to miss somebody. There are saints among us that refuse to make excuses. They refuse to make excuses and they serve faithfully. You know what it does to me? Like even when I think about people like this. That in and of itself takes me back to the source of that spiritual energy. That energy that God supplies, Colossians 129. When I look at these people, and they're not doing anything super special. When I look at folks that they could have have stayed away. They could have stayed home, but they showed up. There are many who have gone on. Their presence among us built me up in our faith. It built me up. They didn't say a word to me, maybe. But they were here. It reminded me of that energy, that, that supply, that strength that comes from God. Oftentimes we look at them, as I said yesterday, we can't explain where it comes from, but we know God supplies their strength. Let's learn those ways. Serve in God's strength. And finally, very quickly, a simple truth. Serve to the glory of God in Christ. The second part of verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This little conclusion to this section is what we call a doxology. Here's the wonderful promise given to us. The king of the universe is glorified when we serve one another like this. You want to bring glory to God? That's not some ambiguous nor nebulous concept. Serve one another. Peter says, God will be glorified. You know, he mentions here, as as he says it, he'd be glorified through Jesus Christ. You might think, well, logically, if we're serving, that God would be glorified through us. But you know, who is the one that is behind us that is animating the body of Christ? We are connected to the head, right? A body without a head, can't do anything. A body without a head, can't carry on its functions. Without the Lord Jesus, our head, our supreme authority, All dominion, right? All glory, all dominion. They belong to Him forever and ever. Amen. When we are connected to Him, God is glorified. Jesus is breathing life into the church through the power of the Holy Spirit who has apportioned gifts, who brings conviction, who manifests the fruit of the Spirit. Do you see how God works to bring his own name, glory. We, church, are connected to Jesus. He uses us to make much of the eternal triune God. All glory, all dominion are his forever and ever. Amen. God's grace abounds to us through the service of his faithful saints. And I'll remind you as we... As we spoke yesterday about this text, the service of faithful saints is not simply just something that God animates in us, but it's something that Jesus actually did. He served. Mark 10:45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. As a ransom for many. Jesus laid down his life on the cross. Taking the wrath of God against sin. He was buried in a tomb. And on the third day he rose. And he did all this so that. We can have everlasting life. No greater act of service. No greater sacrifice. No greater selflessness. As we conclude, I want to invite you, maybe if you've figured out, you don't know Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, then the Bible says, repent and believe. Come to know him and he will begin to work you into the ministry of the church in ways that maybe you never imagined. He'll save you. He'll make your contribution valuable in the kingdom. More than that, though, he'll be glorified. And that's our aim, and that's his aim. Maybe some of you realize, like, hey, I don't serve well. I don't do whatever, some of these things well. You're with me, hospitality, look. Let's encourage one another in those ways. Let's respond today that says, Hey, I'm confessing. I'm not good at this. And I need, I need y'all's help. I need the Lord's help. Maybe that's the way you respond today. And I want to give you just a bit of encouragement. We are gospel people, as I said last week. We are gospel people. And. Again, this is not so related to the text, but more related to funerals. I'll be honest with you. I have committed myself to doing a good job when it comes to preaching funerals. And I'm going to tell you why. And I had some people notice it yesterday. I'm going to tell you why. Because I've been to funerals, and sincerely, I wanted to stand up and tell the preacher to stop talking. And let me finish. Because it's almost like so many preachers fail to communicate the good news of the gospel to people who are looking death in the face. And I can't imagine a greater travesty than pastors that don't preach the gospel at a funeral. So I want you to know I was telling somebody yesterday, if my numbers are correct, then I've preached about 37 funerals in the past seven years. I've committed myself to making sure that we are gospel people. So if I preach your funeral, you can guarantee I'm going to be preaching the gospel. The reason I say this is because I had a man come to me yesterday. He's like, man, I'm just so thankful that you actually shared the gospel and so I knew immediately this brother grieves of the state of funerals in our society as much as I do. And I said, you don't know how much that means to me. So we had a moment there where we thanked and praised God for the way that he has just bound us to gospel truth. We are gospel people. I want to encourage you in those ways. Let's respond. Let's respond together. Um, we're going to sing when I survey the wondrous cross. Stand with us.